Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, Martina Hingis, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. We have a very special show for you today. Today's guest was born in Moscow, Russia, to an elite tennis couple and grew up in Germany, where he thrived, first as a junior, where he beat Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic, and then as a pro. He got to 25 in the world and is now looking after his brother, who just won Olympic gold and Cincinnati, and is the one player that has a chance to disrupt Novak Djokovic's bid for the Grand Slam. Misha Zverev is today's guest. So you're in Monaco. Does that mean you're in Monte Carlo? Do you live in Monte Carlo? Well, Monaco is the name of the country. Monte Carlo is is the city. So, yeah. But you uh, live in Monte Carlo. Yes. Do you ever see the prince? Do you ever uh, just you know have coffee with Prince Albert or no? Uh, I've met him a few times, and actually, I think two years ago, I was walking down the street, like literally a couple like yards away from my apartment, and I just see him walking, like just we we're just meeting each other. I was like. I was a little shocked because you normally you don't expect the prince to be walking around town just like in the evenings, just going for a stroll. But I guess before COVID, like it, it, things like this happen in Monaco, you have like kind of famous people and, and, and celebrities and the prince walking around. Gentlemen, you hear former world number 25, the brother of one of the favorites to to become world number one and one of the favorites coming up at the U.S. Open. That's Misha Zverev coming to us from Monte Carlo, Monaco. Yes, that was correct. <laughs> now, do I have it right that you were just in Germany broadcasting, or were you playing Bundesliga? I was doing everything. So I, I have like <laughs> I, I have close to twenty different jobs right now. But um, I was working for Eurosport, you know, broadcasting the uh, Olympics. Then I also take care of my brother's management and, and PR stories. So I was trying to prepare that and, and playing myself, Bundesliga, Challengers, everything. Man, that sounds that sounds exciting. We're going to get right into this. As you know, we do a five-set format. The first, okay. the first set is the off-the-court report. Okay. You've been in Italy. I just saw you played a Challenger in Italy. You've been in Italy. You've been in Germany. And you've been in Monaco. I've been in France. I've been in Czech as well. So in the last couple of weeks, I've been to probably four or five different countries. Well, it's Europe, you know, everything's close. But have has there been any sort of interesting observation you've had regarding the the Delta variant, the the COVID? Is are things heating up over there? How's how do you how did no, you feel moving around? Not really, honestly. I mean, it may it may sound crazy, but if if I would not read the news right now at all, I would just stay off like social media, Instagram, everything, and I would just walk outside. Yes, in Monaco, you need to wear a mask, but other than that, like everything is normal. Like the stores are open, the restaurants are open, even the nightclubs. Right now, I'm hearing music somewhere, like playing. So everything is normal. People are. I feel like they respect the situation, but they just want to live a normal life. And and it's been way too long now, and it's past you. So did you tell me Jimmy Z's is back open? People are crushing it over at Jimmy Z's? Jimmy's is open. Um, there's a few other places now that are open. And um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm saying it's kind of interesting. You have to wear a mask on the street, but like some nightclubs are, nightclubs are open. So yeah, life continues. That sounds a little COVID-y to me, man. I don't know about being in a, a tight nightclub. I don't even go there, but I know they're open. <laughs> no, I figure as much. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. This is where we talk yeah. about the business of tennis and, and really the stuff that happens on the court. First and foremost, what was it like to be in the broadcast booth in your country, watching your brother slice and dice and come back from really coming off the mat to beat Novak? It was it was pretty emotional, but it was it was funny because normally you watch a match and if it's at home or with friends, nobody records your emotions and, and everything you do. But we had like cameras set up and, and everybody was like watching me react to every of his points. Like when he was like hitting a winner, I was like doing something like this, you know, like fist pumps and like screaming. And every time he would miss an easy ball, I would like, you know, pull my hair out and, and be come on. So um, it, it was interesting. I think it was entertaining for the, for the whole crew to watch me just, you know, battle with my brother against Novak. Well, hang on a second now. So you're in the broadcast. Who are you broadcasting with, by the way? I had a partner. He's a professional commentator. His name was, was Marcus Tile, and he was doing a phenomenal job. He was like focusing on the match, and and I was just going silent for a few minutes, or like screaming or yelling, and then I, I was I was being just emotional, I guess. So it was a two man booth, just the two of yeah. you. Yeah. And you broadcast all of your brother's matches from beginning to end. Um, almost all of them. I mean, something. Well, I, I was I was broadcasting tennis, and I was kind of like in charge for the you know the tennis matches games. So I would I would do other people and players as well. They wanted to you know make it. I don't want to say like not too one sided, you know, because like, yeah, obviously, yeah, I'm, I'm going to broadcast my brother, but I wasn't doing all of his matches. Why did your brother win the Olympic gold? Because <laughs> and I and the reason I say it that way is. Because I, I assume you have an interesting perspective, but also they they talked about it being the most oppressive weather. Medvedev and Novak both were essentially, you know, kind of put the tournament on notice early and said, "Listen, this is crazy. Yeah. We're playing in the middle of the day." Well, what, 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 how'd your brother win this tournament? Well, first of all, he won because I told him, go out there and, and bring us a medal. If you don't come back home with a medal, like, <laughs> I'm going to be upset. So I told him, like, you go you go there, get a medal, and, and I'll be happy. So and, and somehow from the beginning, he knew he has chances to win. And he is physically one of the strongest out there. Even though he's, like, six foot, whatever, five tall, he's, like, you know, somewhat skinny. But he is strong. He has good endurance and he can hit the ball super hard. And and somehow I feel I felt like the weather is not gonna be an issue for him because he knows how to handle the heat. And is he um, is he tougher than he looks? He is much tougher. He's physically tough and mentally he's incredibly tough. And I think from a young age, he always wanted to beat me. Whatever we played, like if it was Monopoly, if it was like eating hamburgers, he had to eat more hamburgers than I did. I mean, he had to beat me in everything. So he, he grew up with the mentality that like he wants to win no matter what. So that's why he's physically strong because he loves to work out and he's mentally pretty tough too. He was down 1-6. I, I think Novak was serving 3-2. Is exactly. that right? Yeah, exactly. And, what, and, and what was going through your mind at that moment in time? Lights out. 
Novak honest, is 12 points away from the match, right? I mean, yeah, but to be honest, Sasha, so I feel like tennis, you, you hit balls and then you play the game. So Sasha was hitting the balls well. So his ground stroke looked good, but the game, it wasn't quite, he wasn't quite there. He was like choosing the wrong targets. Like he had a wrong game plan maybe. And then all of a sudden I feel like he's not far off. If he makes a few adjustments, the whole game can just like turn upside down. And that's exactly what happened. And, and I was jokingly saying like at three, two, he swapped his wristbands. He had like the pink, bright pink wristbands, whatever. And then he went to the um, black and white wristbands. And I was like, you know what? He's not giving up because he's searching for solutions, even outside the tennis court, like whether it's the wristband, whatever it is. That story actually made news that you, you said that <laughs> he changed to the German colors he yes. changed the Deutschland color wristbands, and that's what brought him back in. Yes, that I, I was saying, I was like, you know what? You're playing for Germany. You got to wear the German colors. I mean, white and black is it's, when we talk about soccer, football, that's that's the German color. So, and then he went all German, white and black um, wristbands. I was like, you know what? This is going to be it. This is this is the important. This is the key um, to winning. And then after that, he just. He played unbelievable. He played so big. I mean, his shots were so fast. He went for it. He knew. And I felt like because he was playing for Germany, for his country, he felt really responsible for the way he plays tennis. And from that moment on, it, it honestly felt like he was the leader and like he, he was in control of almost every shot. Isn't it interesting that sometimes just that that 5%, right? You, you got the, play, the, the tennis is so tight. Tennis is so yeah. tight. You know whether a guy is 17 in the world or seven or or, or four, and it, the, the, it can be just a matter of points, a matter of one thing to tilt it. And you came, you seem to think that just the fact that he was had his country on his back, that he was there at the Olympics, tilted it a little bit. It was it was something. I mean, sometimes you can't even explain it, but the fact that like he swapped wristbands, he said, "Look, if I'm going down, I'm going to go down swinging big," and I, I feel like. Because at the end of the day, you could lose a match 6-3, 6-3, which sounds like an easy score, but you would maybe lose like four points. I mean, the opponent would win four points more per set than you do. And four points is nothing. I mean, look at it. It's, it's literally like it can happen as like in, in like five seconds. So the difference, even in an easy match, is very small. The margins are tiny. So him just like finding those, it's not even 5%. I feel like it's finding those 1%, 2%. And 1, winning, 2%. Yeah, it's just the winning the big points. And, and Novak, it felt like Sasha tried to beat him with his own game. Like Sasha was reading Novak's game. And all of a sudden, Novak couldn't anticipate Sasha's backhand, couldn't anticipate the serve anymore. And then everything just like went upside down. It was incredible. I want to talk more about your brother down the line, but you know, this is a show about you. What, uh, yeah, it's your, you know, it's your show. Well, so, no, no, we're going to talk part of me. He's a big sure. part of my life. So hundred percent. What did you, what, he wins the gold medal. Did you get right on the phone with him? Did you guys FaceTime? Did you, did you go right to, did you go right to the nightclub? What'd you do? <laughs> I would, well, first I was, um, so I was sitting there with Marcus Ty with my, uh, commentator, co-commentator, and we had like this screen between us, you know, separating whatever our our seats. And I was like, you know, I moved that screen. I just like went out and like went went into a hug, and because we were both so emotional, and then I had teary eyes. And I, and honestly, I started filming his his reactions because I feel like I want to, you know, keep it forever. I want to save it on my phone. And then 
honestly, I called, I think, my parents. I called Sasha. I, I texted him. I received... I'm still I'm still replying to text messages, by the way. I still have about 260 messages, unread <laughs> messages on WhatsApp. So, and then, no, we didn't go to a nightclub. It was just, honestly, I then did an interview with him. So it was actually work. You couldn't really relax for too long because you, you finish the match, you go to live studios, you, you do the work, you do interviews. It's almost, I felt like as if I played the match, but I didn't, and I still did all the same media stuff, and and it was it was great. It was great fun, and then and literally two hours later, we started preparing the welcoming part. You know, like trying to like, what can we do when when he comes back home? How how are we going to greet him? What are we going to do? Who's going to be there? And um, yeah, so we, I was actually busy all the time. Man, there's so much to talk about. Let's just go quick. What were you just said? You just said you were in five countries. What were you doing in Czech? Playing a tournament. How'd you do? Not well. <laughs> Not well. No, because the last three months, actually my, my last real tournament that I played was Miami Open. And then when we came to, to Europe, I was so I was so busy with like trying to help Sasha in, in all you know in all aspects of his life and game that I couldn't really focus on my own tennis anymore. And then I kind of just my tennis went down, down, down. And I would play a tournament, but sometimes I wouldn't even touch the racket for like five days before that. So obviously, sometimes people practice two hours, like twice a day, and still don't compete well. And I barely practiced in the last couple of months, and, and still try to win a few matches here or there. Are Are you going to retire uh, your career? No, 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 no not retiring. No. You're not There's retiring. Two reasons. Two reasons. A. Roger is still playing. <laughs> and B and I said as long as Sasha is playing I'm gonna I'm gonna be on the tennis court as well because I feel like we grew up both playing on the tour and I feel like it has to continue even if I'm not playing great I, I still want to be I want to be there next to him you were in France what were you doing in France play in France I was actually I was like, traveling through France to to get to a tournament then you were in Germany and you did a lot there you played what but the explain Bundesliga to our our listeners. It's Bundesliga. It's uh, you can call it team tennis in the U.S. or just any league like the NFL, NBA. We have the same in in Germany for the for the clubs. Uh, there's I think ten clubs, and um, they they play against each other to try to win the German championships. And um, you have a lot of foreign players in each team and um there it's it's they have four singles two doubles so you can get a total of six points you can draw three all you can win five one and uh, you play 10 games against all the other teams and then at the end of the season the winner yeah becomes german champion those are good money makers for you guys um used to be used to be used to be back in the day so the structure was back in the day the german players would play the bundesliga to make enough money to travel the whole year and obviously the system changed a little bit now uh, you can still make decent money but uh, the top players still focus on the big hp tournaments rather than the bundesliga and you broadcast the olympics and i worked for eurosport yeah in, in munich i was there for like 10 11 days and um, we were working on the olympics now was that your first foray into broadcasting or is, was have you done that before so i've i've been Doing work with Eurosport and Tennis Channel. I've been at the Australian Open, worked for both of them, uh, French Open as well, and um, the tournament in Hamburg. I was there for Tennis Channel, and now the Olympics was Eurosport. Tennis Channel International. 
Yeah, Tennis Channel International, and I guess bits and pieces were shown on Tennis Channel in the U.S. as well. You're doing color broadcasting matches. Uh, I did both. I would be a commentator. I would do like I would go in like they call Misha's missions, or Tennis Channel would call them credential. Then I would go explore the city. I would have in- interviews with players. I would talk about tennis balls, rackets, technique, strategy. It, it's just basically. I feel like I want to bring tennis closer to the people because, you know, you watch a tennis match for two hours, but you don't know anything that's going on behind the scenes. And I want to be responsible for, you know, trying to bring tennis and people close together. Sounds like you're segueing out, but you say you're going to keep, you're going to keep yeah. grinding on tour. I'm going to keep, yeah, because I love, I love the tour. I love playing tennis with COVID. It wasn't easy and it was definitely not as much fun. So I hope that maybe starting next year, things will loosen up a little bit. And also that my work off the court um, will be, I could I can manage it better. And um, so that I can still, you know, play a tournament here or there. Because I did train a lot, but then this summer was just too busy. What were your impressions of the Naomi Osaka, you know, leaving the French Open, not playing Wimbledon, t- essentially taking the... Yeah, the clay courts and the grass court swings off and then coming back to the Olympics. Yeah. So I, I always, I mean, I, I think I learned it a long time ago. My, my position is always very simple. I'm, if I'm not in a position to judge because I don't know the facts and I don't know what's really going on, then I try to not have an opinion because it's a you know you, you start guessing you start questioning things but in the end you don't know the full story and then it becomes just a game of like too many variables and you just don't know what's going on in the end i try to respect everyone's emotions and feelings and, and their decisions so that's exactly what i did with Naomi. you know if she has a certain emotion or, or condition if she feels a certain way and then she makes takes a decision she takes a stance and then she leaves the terminal comes back it's her decision and it's good. We just have to respect it. Obviously not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to support it in a certain way, but I mean, who are we to judge in the end? You know, everybody's different. And and in the end, we all just want to be happy. Have you ever had any depression? Did the tour ever become very lonely to you? Depression is a, is a strong word. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't know at what stage, do you call it depression or it's still just, I'm in a bad mood kind of thing. So, and obviously when you travel to Asia for three weeks, at some point you're like, I want to go home. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or you spend like, I know a month or so in Australia, like, yeah, you're far from home. But um, there's only been one time where I felt like I wanted to go home. And that's uh, in 2018 when, when my son was born and in September and then I had to leave. I went to Asia for three weeks. And um, after a few days of, of getting there, I got really sick. I had a virus. And I was literally in bed with fever for 10 days straight. <laughs> and, and then at that stage, you're like, wow. Like, you're 10, 10 hours away from home. You're, like, in China. You don't have, like, Netflix or WhatsApp or whatever. And you're in bed with fever. And your son was just born. Your wife is alone at home. You're like... I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I want to go home. So it wasn't depression, but I felt like it was just a very natural and healthy um, circumstance. I mean, uh, do you think there's a problem with hyper aggressive fans on social media? Do you think there's a problem with sort of the vitriol that 
athletes are met with today? I think today everything is very extreme. When when you succeed, people admire you as if you were God. I don't know. Like I mean, you shouldn't compare anyone to God, but you know, they they really think like, oh my God, you are so amazing because you won, you have success. But then on the other hand, if you don't do well, it's the same extreme, but just in a negative way. And I feel that to me is a little bit too much. And and also it's now it's very easy to offend people, criticize people. And especially like as an athlete or an actor or just, you know, somewhat of a famous person. I, I once compared it to, to someone who asked me the same question. Like, just imagine you're at home, you're working from home, you're writing an email and there's 10,000 people watching you write that email. And then you, you screw up a comma or you screw up a word and the whole 10,000 are just like, oh, God, that was awful. What are you doing? Obviously, after a while, you got to get tight writing emails because you know like everyone's watching you and every time you make a mistake, it's going to be disastrous. So, And this is pretty much what tennis players or athletes or famous people go through on a daily basis. But yes, the compensation is great as well because you get re- if you do well, you get rewarded. I guess 10 times more than any other person on this planet or maybe hundred times more. So again, it's the extremes. It's, it's, it, it's, it's life. I don't know if we can, ch- I don't think we can change it. That's why I, I try to say like in the end, we shouldn't judge people as much or we shouldn't have an opinion as easily because I think a human being just wants to live and be happy in the end. Yes. So if we criticize someone for playing a terrible game or not fulfilling our expectations, then yeah, life becomes really rough. You're traveling to New York tomorrow. You're bringing your entire family. What's that week like uh, in advance of the U.S. Open for Team Zverev? What will what will uh, happen? I, I, I I've heard some things that you know. Like quite often, that's a week that you handle uh, media obligations or yeah. uh, sponsor obligations. What's that week like for you for for uh, Team Zverev? Well, it's it's a big team. So we have a physio, we have a neuroathletic trainer, we have tennis coaches, my parents, um, and then we have Sergey Bubka is coming, who's a partner of mine uh, when it comes to you know managing Sasha's business. So everyone's going to be busy doing their things. It's like mom is going to be mom. She will just make sure everyone's kind of happy and satisfied. Um, that's the coach. He's going to take care of the program. Um, then there's coach Misha. We call him coach ice. He's also focusing on the tennis. The neuroathletic trainer was going to make sure Sasha is really like, like the tune he's tuned like a formula one car. He's ready to, to compete, um, emotionally and, and, and mentally. Um, then the, the physical therapist is going to do that you know, his work, Sergey Bubka and I will take care of the media of the scheduling, uh, you know, meeting with potential sponsors or current sponsors. And then I'll also do work for Eurosport as well. Everyone's going to be busy. For our listeners, Sergey Bubka, the agent, also infamously or famously the son of the legendary pole vaulter, the Russian yeah. pole vaulting. He was, the, he was, Ukrainian. sorry, Ukrainian, Ukrainian. sorry, Ukrainian. the Ukrainian pole vaulting world champion olympic champion the greatest at one time he was the greatest pole vaulter in the world i don't know a lot about pole vaulting but sergey bubka this is his son is a tennis agent yeah yeah so we don't call ourselves agents okay 
friends friends of the family like well he's a friend of the face he's part he's part of the family so okay. we're family and we we run a family business in that sense so i i wouldn't call myself an agent yet i don't know i, I don't know the exact term uh, the description of an agent but we we try to help sasha whatever it is we, we're trying to be there for him then and then the, the draw comes out and it's go time draw comes out on friday i believe and then from friday on he's just in the zone like he he doesn't hear anything. He doesn't see anything. He's just focused on, on his next match, and and that's when you leave him alone. So, let's say he starts playing on Monday, the thirtieth, I believe, and um, from Thursday on, he just focused on tennis. Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he can be doing things, meeting people, you know, interviews and stuff. Starting Thursday, it's it's literally go time. That's it. Yeah, he doesn't. He, he like we don't. If we don't really have to, we're not going to talk to him. We just, we're going to let him be. If he wants to talk to us, he wants to have fun and play PlayStation and stuff like that. Or he has his VR goggles, like he, he puts them on, like he flies away to a different world and stuff like that. He does it. So, so from that moment on, we, we just let him be. And then, yeah, we just try to make him make sure he's ready to play. Where, where are you guys going for dinner every night? You go to the same restaurant every night after night or you eat order in? What do you do? It really depends. Um, we used to go to different restaurants before the tournament starts, and then after after it started, it really depends on the schedule. Because if if you finish your matches late, you just order in. Um, on a day off, normally you already prepared for the next day, so there's not a lot of variety <laughs> during a tournament. Like it, it could happen that he would eat the same meal more than five times in a row. So that it, it happened before. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Now, I know your parents are were both born in Sochi. Yeah. But you were born in Moscow, is that right? Correct. Can you explain how you came up in tennis? How did, Where does your tennis exactly begin? I think the day I was born, because my parents both played, so... They were um, very good tennis players. My part, my dad played um, the uh, Davis Cup for the Soviet Union. My mom was a top player back back then in the Soviet Union. So they moved to Moscow because of tennis. So they continued their career in Moscow. And then when I was born, I was you know I remember the club. I remember you know when my dad used to train and work and and basically live live his life uh, on the court. So this is where I also started my kind of tennis life. And I don't want to say career, but from day one, I knew I wanted to be like that. You know, like every little boy wants to be like that. So, um, and then when I was four, we moved to Germany and I just kind of, I always played tennis. I, I, I played all kinds of sports like soccer, basketball, field hockey. And, um, but I knew I want to become a tennis player. Ben Rothenberg wrote an article about your, of your family for racket magazine and he wrote that olga Mors morsakova morsakova the famous russian yeah. player said that your parents were very very good and that they actually were just in a generation that they really weren't given the opportunity like your mom was four in the country so she didn't play fed cup but you know that they they were that they were like extremely elite players when you say they're good players they're like very very good players no i i think i'm the one with the least amount of talent out of the out of all of yeah. us you know i think my dad should have could have been easily 
uh, top 20, top 30 in the world. My mom as well. I think they were really, really good players. And yes, yeah, circumstances were different. You know, the first time my dad uh, left the country to play a professional tournament, he was 24. You know, he, he was the age my brother's at right now. You know, my brother's now, he's almost a veteran. You know, he's been on tour for so many years. And that was the first time my dad actually left the country to play a and, tournament. And can you explain that? They, they got screwed because of being under the Soviet bloc. Is that right? Was that well, what happened? It's not, it's not screwed. Like nobody tried to screw them or it, it wasn't intentional. It was, life was just different. It's, um, it's, it's part of, of the, the, the history of, of the Soviet Union. It was, it was just different, you know, and um, they, they weren't, they weren't able to, you know, just say like, okay, so tomorrow I'm flying to the U.S. to play a tournament and then I'm going to stay in Florida and train and I'm going to come back three months later. It's like, no, no, it's, you're part of, of a club, you're proud of a federation, and then, you know, it, things just worked differently back then. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible because they really enjoyed life in the Soviet Union, so they were happy. It wasn't maybe the easiest um, place to, to become a professional tennis player in the sense of, like, deciding where you want to go, what you want to do in, in that sense. But the, the tennis was good. Tennis was good. The way they taught tennis was good. But tennis, you couldn't have, you couldn't be a professional tennis player as a business. It was, it was different back then. And and they legally emigrated to Germany as a result of, uh, I think they got jobs at a club. So, yeah. So, so, and then the and then the Soviet Union fell apart shortly after that. Um, actually, it fell apart, and then they they left. So oh, they oh yeah, they because, did. Oh, I'm sorry, I have it wrong. Yeah. No, no, so, yeah, because my dad was uh, he he was mem a member of the CSKA Moscow Tennis Club, and it, and it's part of the military uh, tennis base. So he was also in the military. He, I mean, he didn't go to war or anything, but he, he was you know part of the military. So and then when the Soviet Union fell apart, then you know everything changed. The whole structure of the country changed. Everything changed, and they were like, "Well, your dad you know, was like the officer in charge of tennis." Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I don't know how to call it, but yeah, it was kind of like that. Um, but yeah, then because they they were getting jobs, they were getting offers from like different tennis clubs all over the world because he was a good player, he was a good coach, and you know people. But my parents were happy. They were like, no, we we want to stay in Moscow. We're happy. We have a good life, and things are fine. And then when the Soviet Union fell apart, then yeah, then things changed and they decided to move to Germany. And Sasha was born in in Germany. In Hamburg. Do you guys speak German to each other? Do you speak Russian to each other? Do you speak English to each other? How do you, how does everybody speak to each other? Uh, so we text in English because it's just easy because we always text in English to everyone. Um, but then we, we speak Russian at home just because it's the um, mother language and, um, you know, mother tongue. And my parents, I mean, their German is okay, but it's not phenomenal. So, yeah. So they stay out of the German. They, I mean, they speak German, I mean, to other people, but no, at home, we speak Russian. What language do you dream in? They say that's your real language. Depends what I dream about. <laughs> All right. So that's it's the same question is like, what do you like? What language do you think in? Or like, when you think, what, what language do you use? I'm like, it really depends if I think of the conversation with my wife it's Russian if I think of the Eurosport commentary that I did yesterday it's German if I think of airplanes it's English because I did my pilot's license in America so I'm like 
I really use a lot of languages when I think or dream. Now, when did you start getting very good? I mean, you had an illustrious junior career, um, or at least I think so. I mean, I think you were three in the world as a junior, right? I mean, you had a very good. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> it was, I don't consider it as, as special, but um, you don't it was, consider it, was, it special. No, it was I didn't win a, I didn't win Grand Slams. I was I was never so like under 14s. I was really good. I beat Novak. I beat Andy Murray when I was 15. So I was I was good. And then 16, 17, 18, they started taking over. You know, and I was I was good, but I was not the top top guy. What was the difference when you look back, like when, when you were fourteen, you were better. When you're sixteen, you're not as good. They call they, and then they had better pro, pro careers. I mean, they had listen, they had legendary pro careers. I mean, they, you're twenty five <laughs> in the world. It's an incredible thing to be twenty five in the world. But what what what's the separation if you if you um, think about it? Well, I feel like there's two things. One is technically they're better they have a better technique on the court when it comes to hitting balls and then their strokes are just cleaner and also i feel like they wanted it more maybe so because i was i never felt like i never had the need to be on center court i never felt like i had to win in order to be happy you know what i mean i was i was i was happy with being average in that sense i was like i'm a pro player i'm pretty good life's good I'm, I'm happy, but I also want to discover other things. I want to like explore the world. I want to explore myself. I want to find out who I am. You know, I I was really really open towards just life in general. And and I think if you want to become a legend or if you want to become the best you possibly can, you need to really narrow down um, and just focus on on one thing only. And that's tennis. And I never felt like I wanted to do it. Yeah, you keep it moving a little bit. Yeah, like even now, as you see, like I, I like to do many things. I like yeah. to, like the day has 24 hours. I probably use like almost all of them with just different things, you know. It's funny, you know, I, many, many years ago, I was at Saddlebrook. I think I was doing a story, but I was there and I was at, the, was at Dempsey's and, and Stefano Capriati was at the bar and he was holding court and talking and talking and talking. And he said that in order to be number one in the world, you can't have anything else in your life. You can't go to concerts. You can't go to movies. You can't go to restaurants. You can't have a girl. He just said that, you know, you have to have a full-blown single-minded focus. I never forgot that. I mean, that's maybe a little extreme, but in a way, in a, yeah, in a way it's, it's true because, I mean, you can go, there's maybe days, I want to say days in, in a whole year where you can relax, yeah, but not too much. But other than that, whatever you do can affect the result tomorrow in a week or a month from now. So that's why also I feel like a person will win big tournaments, big matches. If he really believes he deserves it as well. And in order to deserve it, you need to make sure you do everything you possibly can to, to reach your goal. And when, when you have the choice to go to bed at 11 PM to then train at nine in the morning, or hang out with your friends, go to bed at 1 a.m. And, you know, you need to make a decision every day. What you eat, what time you go to bed, how many hours you spend playing PlayStation, whatever it is. Everything can then, yeah, it can lead to winning or losing in the end. I mean, that's high stakes right there. 
when you really think yeah. about it that way. Like you can't yeah. go knock back a half a pack of cigarettes and a cup and a bottle of wine one day. <laughs> you know mind, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, the mindset has to be all I, like all I, like I need to do. But no matter what I do, it has to make me better. So if I had the choice, am I going to drink a beer? Okay, I can't. Is it going to make me faster tomorrow? Probably not. So I'm not going to drink it. So am I going to go like out tonight? Okay. Is it going to make me a bit more tired for tomorrow's practice? Probably. Yes. I'm not going to do it. So this is how you live your life. And then, okay, am I going to eat healthy? Am I going to eat like, am I going to have a cheap meal? The healthy food is going to make me probably perform better. So I'm going to go healthy. So this, like, if you have this kind of mindset, then you will become a champion, but obviously it's not easy. And my mindset was not necessarily that I wanted to have cheap meals or drink alcohol or have cigarettes or party. No, it's more like I want to explore the world. I want to get to know people. I want to get to, I want to understand how things function. I want to understand why am I the person who I am? Like why are certain things like, why, why is the culture? Like we literally drive 500 miles and the culture there is so different. And, and the people look at us and, and think we're crazy. We think they're crazy. So I was interested in just understanding the world that we live in. So and as a tennis player, sometimes if you're too focused on tennis, you don't have the energy to do that. Tao of Misha Zverev right there. That's some <laughs> good stuff, man. Now, when did you stop going to school? Um, physically, when I was like 15, 16, and then I did homeschooling, and that it was so tough. And then I, I guess I, I stopped, I finished, I quit, whatever you want to call it, when I was like, 17 18 maybe when did you crack the top 100 i want to say 2007 you don't remember that day is that not a day you like looked at the paper no, and, i no. think it was 2007 it was like right before my 20th birthday or after my 20th it was right around that time was there a a win in your maybe junior career or early in your pro career that said oh you know what I can get into the top 30. I can get into the top 10 or whatever. No. No, I actually, the first time I got into the top 50, I was 44 in the world. I was like, oh my God, I'm, that's pretty high, 44. I feel like I don't even belong there. There's so many good players that are like, what am I doing here? So I almost felt uncomfortable being ranked that high. And then the second time when I made it to 25 in the world, I actually, I was different. I was growing up and I felt like I belong here. I, I know what I'm doing and, Yes, maybe there's other players that have more talent than I do, but I don't care. I'm 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 okay. Friends of mine want to know how how did you stay serving volleying all this time through? <laughs> so, and it's a funny slash interesting story. I never I used to never serve in volley. I used to only hit forehands all over the court up until I turned like 12, I think. And all of a sudden, after I turned 12 my forehand just disappeared. I, I could not, I did not know how to hit a single forehand into the court. And then I was like, okay, so I don't know how to hit a forehand anymore. So I'm going to develop my backhand, my serve, and my volley because I need to win matches somehow. If I can't hit a forehand, I'm going to run to the net. So, and that's, that's what I did. That's why I developed a serve and volley game. And my dad was in serve and volley, so he could teach me how to volley. And it was more of a plan B kind of scenario, not plan A. Do you love to serve in volley, or is it just? Do you yeah. feel like it, or do you just feel like it's the only thing you can do? 
uh, it depends. Sometimes it's if, if the opponent doesn't know how to handle my serve and volley, it's fun because you feel like you're destroying him, but you're destroying his game. He doesn't get any rhythm. He doesn't know how to pass you. Like he gets frustrated. That's fun. Um, if you play Roger or Rafa, then it's no fun because they're just they're just they're killing you every time you serve like and they guess the server they, they don't even have to guess it. they just read your serve and then they return at your feet so you pop up the first ball and then they pass you with the second one and you're like oh it's it's really frustrating but uh, i want to talk i want to talk about what it's like to be on the opposite side of the net from you know the three the three big guys you know we could add murray to that but i i want to ask you was it easier to serve in volley in 2004 than it is in 2017, 2021? Um, has the rackets and the strings gotten so, like, immense and intense that it just seems like every year the players, men and women, can absolutely take these full wicked cuts at the ball and the ball doesn't go out? Um, yes and no. Back then, people had a different technique. They wouldn't hit with as much topspin, so the ball would fly through the air like you can easily project the trajectory. You know, it would just go straight at you. Now, when you play those like people that have a heavy topspin, the ball is doing all kinds of crazy things in the air, and it's so hard to read it. Also, they would hit. I feel like the ball would travel slower through the air back then than it does now because back then the courts were quicker and the rackets were everybody tried to have more control so they, they they would hit the ball and try to control the ball now the courts are slow the rack uh, the balls are pretty slow but the people try to hit the ball a lot harder so it travels a lot quicker through the air with more topspin so it's it's harder right now i i would say but then also because no one's doing it there are certain types of players that are not used to it and then if you get one of those players and he doesn't know how to pass you with his backhand, then all you do is just approach his backhand and wait for the unfos there. So I guess it, it's gotten a bit harder, but there's still players that don't like it. 2017, your best year on tour. Do you agree? Your best year on tour? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was pretty good. <laughs> Certainly your best ranking. Yeah. Who were you that year that's different than you in other years? What was it that clicked? Were you just in your – it was just like you just in your prime physically, mentally? What was it? I think mentally, yes. I was very confident with who I am. I knew exactly what I was doing on and off the court because I feel like if you take the right decisions off the court, it'll help you on the court as well because you don't question yourself. You don't doubt yourself. And if you have that kind of a mindset where you're just happy with life or confident, then obviously when you're faced with a tough situation on court, you're just confident, you know how to handle it. So, and then physically I was pretty strong as well. And I, I felt like I was just in a happy place. I mean, not that I'm not right now. No, I, I still am. But also my goals now have shifted a little bit. You know, I have a family, I have a wife. So back then it was like, my all I wanted to do was play tennis, play matches, and like train hard and and you know eat, sleep, and whatever. Live tennis every day. So and I think that was the difference. And I just played. I was also lucky sometimes. Part of me also was was thinking maybe you were just in like a really good zone with your brother too, 
where you both were just like right there each and every week, just ready to beat the hell out of everybody. It was it was a good time because we would travel together, we'd play the same tournaments, and I think we would help each other a lot. So it was again, it was just it was just lucky in a way as well because he was playing super well and we were kind of pushing each other to do better. We were challenging each other, we were competing in practice, we would compete against each other. Like when it like in the gym we would do the same. So I think we really helped each other a lot. Would it be fair to say that injuries have sidetracked you? Um, yeah, I, so I had a good run at the Australian Open 2017. And then I get there in 2018 and I, I'm playing first round against Chung, who, who then reached the semis. But And I wake up with, with a fever again. And, and I spend, once again, I spend, I think it was 12 days in the room. So I, I left, so I played Monday, first week of Monday, I played my first round match, whatever, I retired. And then I left the room for the first time, I think it was the finals of the Australian <laughs> Open. Oh. So just literally for 13 days, I was in the room just with fever doing nothing. And if you look at it, yes, that was maybe a little unfortunate. And then the following year, I'm like, okay, so I'm healthy, everything's good. We arrive in Australia, first practice session with my brother, um, I'm like jet lagged, little like my my legs are a little wobbly, and and my brother goes like, come on, let, let's play points. I'm like, Sash, we just we've just arrived from Europe. It was a 24 hour flight. You sure you want to play points? Like, yeah, come on, let's play points. We always do it. I'm like, yeah, but I'm old, whatever. And long story short, we play points, um, and I fall and break my wrist. So I fracture my wrist, and uh, first day. In Australia. Oh, so wow. that's how you start 2019. The year before I had a virus, 2019, I have a fractured wrist. And then it's it's my right hand, so I can still play with my left, but still have a two-handed backhand. You can't really hold your racket for, you know, whenever you take the racket back, you need the second hand to hold the racket. I can't really toss the ball on my serve. And I spend the next, like, two and a half, three months in a cast. So that also is tough. And then I come back and I just play terrible tennis, which can happen. And I lose all my points from the year before. I drop out of the one top 100. I try to get a grip on it and I'm starting to do better again. And 2020, Corona happens and that's it. You're stuck. <laughs> so you can say that like it was injuries. It was bad timing. It was me not being professional or focused, but in the end, it is what it is. But that makes sense why you stay optimistic in spite of your ranking because you, you know you're kind of still bad to the – like you're still a bad dude out there. Like you, you yeah. still feel confident when I, when I look at you. You look like a guy that's ready to go win tennis matches. I mean, I'm also rational, meaning I know if I haven't practiced in three weeks, I'm not going to win anything. But I do know if I practice for a month or two months and I'm in shape, my game is ugly enough to beat people. You're 33 years old. Is yeah. there, can, you, can you get better or can you just enjoy your life out there on the tour? Better than I was before or better than I am right now? Both. I mean, certain aspects of the game can improve. Obviously, with age, you're not going to be as quick, as fast, as focused, I assume, because you just have more things to worry about or think about. But I think I can enjoy it more than I did before. So what, that helps. If you have fun, I think you can it can help you. What what's it like to be on the other side of the court from 
a, a, a Roger Federer in his years of just absolute dominance? As a Roger fan, it's a lot of fun because you have the best tickets in the house. Um, but as a as an opponent, it's it's miserable because you feel helpless. Well, at least I feel helpless most of the time. But when I played him in in Australia in 2017 in the quarters, and after a few shots that he would hit, I would look up to my box, and even my mom was clapping. And then afterwards, she apologized and said, "Look, I'm sorry, but I mean, <laughs> the, the things he did on court were incredible." I'm like, "Mom, don't worry about it." Even I almost clapped a few times. And um, I, I remember one changeover in particular. I was sitting down, I was looking up, and it was full house. I don't know how many thousands of people. And I'm just realizing I'm playing in the quarters of a Grand Slam against Roger, and he's playing incredible tennis. I, I don't know what to do, but it's great. I mean, it's it's so much fun. Like, who would have thought? And there's only so many people that can say that they've experienced this. And I'm right here. I'm I'm his opponent, and I can try to do my best. But it was incredible. It was it was a lot of fun. You know, I've I've been fortunate. I, I had an opportunity once to practice. You know probably five or six years ago now with John McEnroe and I, yeah. and, and just practicing with him, I'm just a club player. I'm not fit, but you feel like you're playing King Kong. When you play a pro player, when you, you feel that the ball feels different, the ball feels heavier. You feel like you're back on your heels constantly. Do, do you feel the same way when you play someone like that, where you feel like you can't breathe almost the oxygen is like out of your lungs literally and well, physically right well it's it's reality because their balls are different i mean otherwise they wouldn't be where they are because they have more spin the ball is it, it is heavier it, it doesn't just feel heavier it is heavier the speed is different the ball comes back a lot quicker because they're always stepping into the court they're taking the ball a lot earlier and they have so many more different like so many more shots that they can hit from a certain position and i say even when I played Novak, I, I would be like, okay, I approach his backhand, for example, and I know he's going to go down the line, cross, maybe a lob. Okay. When I approach Roger, I feel like he can go down the line short at my feet. He can go down the line quick into the corner, into like close to the baseline. He can do, he can go straight at me. He can go at my feet. He can go short cross court. He can go a quick cross court. He can go a lob. He can chip the slice short cross court and he can chip the slice down the line and fake it. So he has probably like nine more options. And, and this is exactly what happens when you play those guys. Like you're out there and they can hit so many more different shots than any other player that it really is a different ball game. And isn't it true that their footwork is so much better? It's, it's, it's efficient. Like in tennis, people say, oh, use small steps or do adjustment steps. And I'm like, this is nonsense. Like Roger and Rafa, they don't do adjustment steps because they make one big lunge and they are in perfect position. So they don't waste energy. They make massive steps running, getting to the ball. They do lunges, they split step. They just all, every step they take is just pure efficiency and they're always in position to attack you. And, and that's the difference because even Novak, Novak, his eyes, they can read the opponent like no one else. Like 
you like, as an opponent before you even like decide where you want to go he can read the position of your like foot, foot stance footwork he knows where you're going to hit the ball and then he starts moving there sometimes he doesn't even need to run super fast he just reads it he's there before you even hit the ball different thing it's it's just different yeah like that, that's why they are the best because they just read your game better than anyone else What has it been like to watch your brother go to the top of the food chain in pro tennis? It's been fun. I mean, he's got. But for our listeners, he has a big smile on his face when I <laughs> ask that question. I have a big smile because I don't want to sound cocky or overconfident, but I knew it. Like since day one, I was telling literally everyone. I was telling my mom. I was telling other people. I was telling. Play, like former players like Boris Becker, I was like, he's going to be good. Like, I know he's going to be good because they're like, why do you say that? I'm like, A, he he feels the racket. He feels the ball. He is a, he's a player, you know, he can play with, he's artsy on the court. And also his mindset, he, he loves winning and he's very determined and stubborn and this is good. So he has the full package and, and whatever I did not have, I know he has it. I can see it. So, him you know going up the rankings and, and becoming one of the best was like i knew it i and it's fun because a i proved myself right and b it's 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 fun because it's your brother i had the privilege of of seeing him win rome i, I was in rome and then i was at the end of the year finals when he won when lendl was in in camp and I yeah. said to my pet friends, I said, man, I don't, I can't imagine this guy ever lose another tennis match. <laughs> I never saw a guy play so, so well. He plays, he, he glides on clay. He murdered everybody indoors on the hard courts. He's serving yeah. easy one, 140 serves. And yeah. he doesn't really miss his backhand. Yeah. And 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 I couldn't have been more wrong. He he had he struggled after. I I felt like, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you're watching TV and you you jinx the you jinx the TV. It yeah, was like yeah, he, no. he really. So my question is, what happened? Why did he? Why did your team struggle after he won the end of the year World Championships that that year? Well, there's there's different things. I mean, uh, in the end. I think it all comes from from your brain, I guess, because he has the shots. I mean, yes, he has technical flaws. He can improve his volley. He can improve his slice. He can improve his footwork in certain situations, yes. But then I think he couldn't perform at a certain level, and, and he was playing worse than he would normally do. And, and I think it all has to do with, with just like the mental um, situation he's in and whether he's able to perform or not. And, and he wasn't able to perform. And maybe he wanted to win. You know, when you want something too much, like it's sometimes, it's, it's sometimes good because you're really determined, but it's sometimes bad because you, you kind of don't enjoy the process. Because I always say like, if everybody wants to win a slam, but you watch Rafa play at the French Open, he's happy about every single victory because he enjoys the process. He's happy about every single point. 
That's what I mean. He enjoys every single forehand that he crushes and he makes the opponent suffer. He enjoys the process. And I feel like that's very, very important. When, when Roger is winning Wimbledon on grass, he's having fun out there every single day of the tournament. Like whether he's practicing, he's warming up, he just enjoys, he enjoys walking down Wimbledon and, and like looking at the green grass courts. He, he lives it. And I feel like Sasha maybe got to a point where he wanted to win so bad that he for a moment forgot how to enjoy it. How impactful was the Patricio Ape lightly publicized, you know, you, you, when you break up with an age, how, how do these things affect someone's tennis? I mean, everything affects you. Yeah. I mean, literally everything. So, he he wouldn't like whine about it he wouldn't complain about it but like he would ask questions and he would like you could see that like he would hear certain stories or he would get some some sort of information about the case and then he would just sit there and and stare in one direction for like five minutes and be like sash sash wake up sash and and you can see that like it's it's bothering him it's it's distracting him everything that distracts you we talked about early it is not good so it definitely it was a decent sized distraction let's put it that way and and the importance of having a stable environment yeah is 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 crucial especially for someone like sasha who um he's he, he normally is very loyal to his people and and he doesn't like to have arguments or feel like the team is not is not united so it was it was a new it was also very new to him because for the first time in his life he was going through something like that it was it was like a breakup in the end because you have a, you build a relationship with the, with the partner with whoever it is and then you go through a somewhat of a tough breakup and that was his first one well i mean it, it, it felt like a divorce when you read the when it you mean, read the <laughs> it was two years of battling i mean everyone was was involved because was, i mean at the end of the day there was so much paperwork there was so much data there was so much of everything that you go through because people were asking us questions so what happened in 2012 or something i'm like i have no idea what happened in 2012 we'll try to remember i'm like i'm trying i have no idea and then you you get to see all the the documents and and stuff, and you're like, oh my god, there's so much stuff that happened since. I need to go through everything to try to get a clear picture of the whole story. There's been other adversity with regards to your brother. Yeah, um, I didn't bring you on the show to go through that, but I wanted. I have one question for you, and the question is this: yeah. What do you say to people that? may have a bad impression of of your brother well, look i'm of course i'm biased because i am his brother but i also like i've seen him grow up and i've seen him be a little kid i've seen him be happy i've seen him be sad and and the one thing i can always say like he was always there and he's always there for for family and friends and everyone that that need helps that needs help and he's always had a good heart. And even though he wants to like win every tennis match out there and, and he wants to beat me in basketball, whatever it is, at the end of the day, he wants to have a family that's, that's really united and that's happy. And, and he hates it when, when someone is, is, is not feeling good, you know, whether it's for reasons of, you know, dealing with his girlfriend or whatever it is, or just going through a tough time. 
he's always the first one who's like, okay, how can I help? So, I mean, like I said, we bring up the whole topic of also social media. It's, it's so easy to have an opinion and without knowing the full story. And that's unfortunate. That's why I stay out of politics, for example. I stay out of a lot of things because it's so hard to, to have the full picture of what's, what's really going on. Uh, last question here. Does he have a shot at winning the U.S. Open? Are you guys ready to go? <laughs> well, I mean, last year he needed two points uh, to win the U.S. Open. So I think he definitely has a chance to win it. And But right now we're, he's still playing in Cincinnati, so we're a couple of weeks out. So like I said, if you enjoy the process, things will happen. So don't look at what's going to happen three weeks from now. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. I just say something, and you say what comes in your mind. You ready? All right. Let's do it. Your favorite racket of all time? The one I'm using right now. Which, which racket, Betty, please? Uh, it's a head racket. It's uh, speed. Which color is it? Right now, it's white and black. Do, do, they, do they give you different paint jobs? I had different paint jobs all over. The, yeah, I mean... If I had to pick one, it would probably be the paint job I won, uh, I beat Murray with. But have you played with the same racket throughout your pro career and they just give you a different paint job? It's it's very similar. There, there sometimes there's slight, like, small changes because always, there's always new technology. Like, there is, like, yeah, and I also tweak the balance and the weight and there's little changes. There's Honestly, there's no two exact same rackets. How heavy is your racket? Right now, it's um, 333 grams without strings and a grip well that's heavy with that's a heavy stick with strings 350 uh, it's like 355 i want to say with racket and uh, with strings and, and grips how do you string the racket depends but i got on the main 27 kilos i don't know in pounds and then synthetic on the cross 25.5 kilos you're still playing with natural gut i i started not too long ago because i had elbow issues and the strings or whatever would hurt my elbows. I then switched to gut, and then all of a sudden, I was cured. Wow, that's a that's a real commercial for uh, natural gut. I, it, it is softer, and it's easier on your elbow, especially if you get older. Where do you keep your trophies? I don't have that many <laughs> at home. Actually, we have a lot of trophies in our house in Hamburg, and then we have some right now here in, in my apartment, Monaco. Did you save your credentials? Actually, I do. I have almost all my credentials. There are in the cave, like in the basement, and I hung them up, and I saved all my credentials, my wife's and my my son's. Hang on a second. You you hang them? I hang them. There's like a – well, there's just a massive pipe, and I kind of hang them over the pipe, so there's a couple hundred credentials, yeah. You hang them over a pipe? Yeah. Your greatest win, best win you ever had? Uh, Murray. Australian Open, uh, round of 16 against Andy Murray. You played your best tennis you ever played? Yeah, I think just the moment. It was world number one, last round of 16 at a slam, Rod Laver Arena, playing in front of my family. It just, it can't get any better. Your worst loss? I had so many. <laughs> um, honestly, no. It was 2018. In New York, I played Taylor Fritz. The year before, I played round of 16. And then I played Taylor Fritz on two sets to love up. 
and my nutritionist swapped my electrolytes, my drinks to something new to try it. And I, I, after the set break, I'm going to go, I went to change my outfit and I'm walking back to the court and all of a sudden I start cramping. I'm like, this is not possible because I feel absolutely fine. I'm, I'm in shape, but I'm cramping. And so the minerals were absolutely not fit for my body. And, and I lost the match in five sets and it was so painful because I felt like I was so in control and I was so playing well. And then just my body like broke down. What does it feel like to go into a, to go into start cramping on, on a court? It's me personally. I just want to leave the court and survive because my worst nightmare was cramping after a match for about seven or eight hours straight that happened to you i happened to me i i played in australia i left the court and once i left the court i I walked another 10 yards and just lied down flat and i had three or four people trying to massage me and cool me down and i was cramping for a few hours then they put me on a stretcher they brought me to the doctor then i was cramping there for another couple hours and then after like seven or eight hours, finally, I, 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 they gave me something and I stopped cramping. That was the worst. There, it was so painful. I literally like, I had, I had a person, I, so my, my index, no, sorry, my ring finger and my middle finger were kind of like, they were like making a fist basically, but just two fingers. And I had a guy, a solid guy trying to straighten them out and he couldn't because they were just locked up and they were, it was, it was, it was incredible. Bro, this just left me speechless. No, cramps are the worst. And like, I, I, there was there was the time when I felt like, okay, if I die right now, I would not care. Just make it stuff somehow. Because if you're full full body cramps, the, I mean, I fractured. So I, I fractured two ribs. I've broken my right wrist twice. I had surgery in my left ribs. I had a herniated disc. I had a tear in my patella tendon. Whatever, nothing. I mean, nothing compared to like the full body cramp. Man, you just rendered me speechless. I never that really means- heard anybody explain it like that. That sounds <laughs> terrible, man. <laughs> it was pain. That's what I'm saying. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Your favorite tournament? Um, it comes to many. Uh, Halle, Germany, Halle. Why? Because it's a little town the center court and the hotel are like 50 yards apart from each other we always get like four rooms in one row with a like with a uh, like balcony that everyone can access so we, we share a, whole, a big balcony and then we have the view onto court one show court one and send the court and then every evening when they kind of shut the gates, we just open all the balcony doors. The dogs are running around. Like we're just all meeting on the balcony, having a good time, playing cards, chatting. And the whole week is literally like a family family vacation at a tournament. And it's just, I don't know, it's my favorite place. Your favorite city? Hamburg. Your favorite court? Could be any court in the world. A type of court or just actual court? You can answer it any way you want. Uh, Rod Laver Arena. You love Rod Laver Arena? I, best memories I had. The best player party you ever attended? Didn't go to player parties. Don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a partier. Never went to a player party? 
No, I mean, a few times, but they just, they don't leave me speechless. Your favorite forehand? Roger Federer. Backhand? Who, my brother. Volleys? Ooh, tough one. I want to say Edberg. Serve? Serve, even Isavich. You love going on serve. I just, when I was little, I just always found it fascinating. He was like the first guy to serve over 200 Ks an hour, like constantly. So it was just, it was just even easy. Who has the best serve? Oh, it's Goran. Like, oh, I'm going to serve like Goran right now. So it's Goran. Big entourage or lean and mean? Both. <laughs> um, I, the big entourage means my whole family's there. I love it. But also when it's just, you know, my coach and I, nice and cool and quiet, I like it too. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, no aggravation, what would it be? Oh, boy. I think I would sell, like anything. I think I would... Definitely make sure that more professional tennis players will make a living with tennis. I think that's that's it. It would help the sport, and it, I feel like it would help the players because now I'm I'm playing smaller tournaments and I'm going to play challengers and futures and and the prize money there. Like a challenger is a pretty good tournament, but losing first round, people would make like three hundred twenty dollars minus taxes. That's that's about $200, $250 a week they would make. And and you could go weeks and weeks making a couple hundred bucks a week, like a week. And then you still work hard, you train hard, and you're still a decent tennis player, but it's not much money. Is it, and, and it's just too top heavy? Is the prize money just too top heavy? I, I mean, Top heavy makes it sound like they don't deserve it or they make too much money. I don't think they make too much money or they don't deserve it. That's not true because I feel like they do and and they are legends. But it's just, I wish it would just be just not evenly spread out, just more for the guys that are not as, as ranked as high. I just We just need more money, not just like shared in a different way. Are you a proponent of the PTPA? PTP, that's Novak's thing. Mm-hmm. It's politics. I'm not involved. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know the details. So, if if they want to make tennis and the conditions and whatever better, then it's great. But I don't know. I don't know enough details about to know to be saying like, oh yeah, this is great, or no, this is not great. Hey man, I gotta tell you, I I didn't know that much about you when I um, when I booked booked this interview, and I didn't know what this was gonna be like, and I enjoyed every second of it. I really just want to thank you for thank you. having such a you know like cool forthcoming earnest conversation. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm glad I could I could do it. So I'm honored. Thank you. And, you know, I got to tell you, too, I, I appreciate you um, talking so uh, plainly about your brother. I, I, you didn't have to do that, and you did. And, um, 
you know, it's a neat thing to get that kind of perspective, I think, for our listeners. I think, it, why wouldn't I? He's my brother. I'm proud of him. I think it would be, it would be weird if, if I wouldn't like talking about it because it's like, it, you know, in the same way, I, I would love talking about my son if he, if, he would, if he'd be a great tennis player because it's family. We grew up together. I feel like we we did so much, so many, we created so many memories together that now like talking about it, like remembering how we traveled to satellite tournaments when I was 16 in Australia, he was six years old. I had my mom before going to Australia, she had a, um, a groin hernia, whatever you call it. So she had surgery. So she, the fact that she couldn't carry heavy bags and we had four bags, each of them 55 pounds. Then we had, I had my brother who would constantly want to sit on my shoulders because he was tired of walking. Then we had like soccer balls, basketball balls. We had body boards for, for surfing and swimming. And we were traveled by train around Australia to like play tournaments. And it was the best time ever because it was just like, we would walk from the hotel to the courts and back in like 95 degree weather because we wouldn't have so much money for cabs. And we would stop by at Burger King. We would get like one drink and then just free refills. We'd get one cup and get like 15 refills, like five for each of us and then walk back home again. And, and those are like just stories that you remember forever. And like one day it was so hot that we had a bushfire next to the courts. And, and we had this thing that like, Every time I would start a match, my brother would start jogging around the courts. And I played qualies, and it was four rounds of qualies. So he did that for four rounds of qualies. So, like, he went on four, four separate jogs. I get into main draw. He goes on a jog again, the routine. I win the first set, but I lose the second set. And I'm like, Sash, I lost the second set. You got to go run again. And he looks at me. He's six years old. He's like, man, it's four, like it's 95 degrees. I was like, I'm tired. I'm like, Sash. Do you want me to win or do you want me to lose? He's like, oh, all right, I'm going to go run. So then he goes on his like 17th run for that week, and I win the third set, six love. And I'm like, you see, it was team effort. You went running, I win the third set, six love. And and those are the things, I mean, obviously put a massive smile on my face, but like this is how we functioned as a as a as siblings, as a family. Like I'm playing, and he still feels a part of it. He runs, and now like he's playing, and I'm like, doing other things because I feel like I'm a part of it and I try to help him any which way possible. So of course I love talking about those things because it's a once in a lifetime kind of story because you don't, it's, I don't know. It's, it's unique. Man, that makes me want to kind of go for a run. You want to kind of hit the streets. <laughs> well, that was terrific, man. This thank, thank you again. Have a safe trip tomorrow. And uh, Hey, I hope our paths cross down the road. You know, maybe we'll see each other again in real life. Definitely. All right, thank you so much. Misha Zverev, you are released. Huge thank you to Misha Zverev, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code, CRAIG30, in all caps, at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.